Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. For those of you who are visiting, uh, thank you for choosing to worship with us today. We're so excited to have you here. Um, my name is Greg. I serve here as the lead pastor, and um, one of my main jobs is to deliver the word week in and week out, uh, and we do so by preaching through books of the Bible, and we are in Exodus chapter 7 today. So please open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7, we're going to continue our study through the book of Exodus, and today we're going to cover the first 13 verses of chapter 7 of the book of Exodus. If you are just joining us today, this is your first installment in the Exodus series. We will do our best in the first slide to review what we've come to so far so that even though you're jumping on a treadmill that's already running, you can at least have a fighting chance of keeping up a little bit. Exodus chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 13. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of the land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring uh, my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace and mercy to understand this passage today? Would you help us to know your mind? Would you help us to see that your word, the same word, can harden us in our rebellion against you, or your word can melt us and soften us? We see a dramatic shift taking place in two different people. There's a great change in Moses and his willingness to follow you and obey you. And even at 80 years old, he's just now begun his life's work. And there's also a great change wrought over Pharaoh, whose stubbornness and rebellion persist in ever-mounting proof that you alone are God. By all evidence, this man dies shaking his fist at you. Yet we see the first step of that pressure coming today. Lord, give us hearts that melt like wax at your word. Give us hearts that 
want to be moved by you. Give us hearts that will obey and hear and listen for your glory. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as some of you might recognize from the title of this sermon, my wife and I enjoy Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. And it's about halfway through the second book, there's this famous line that you see on the screen here. For the first book and a half or so, storm clouds are gathering, armies are collecting, and King Theoden sees the enemy approaching. He's being attacked, and he says, and so it begins. This line has infiltrated me and my wife's everyday life. I'll be standing, looking out the window in mid to early November, and I'll see the first snowflakes of the winter. I take a sip of my cup of coffee, and I say ominously, so it begins. <laughs> We've been enjoying a few hours of quiet in the morning. The sun is up. Things are just starting to feel relaxing, and we hear the creak of the door open upstairs and the pitter-patter of little feet. The silence is about to break, and my wife says in her most ominous voice, and so it begins. <laughs> Indeed, the peace is about to let loose. The children are about to come thundering down the stairs, and so it begins. Everything to this point in the book of Exodus has been a prelude. We've been working our way up to this grand event. We're going to talk in a moment about the centrality of this event in the Old Testament and just how important it is for the whole Bible moving forward. But everything, like I said, was mere prelude. And here today we will encounter the beginning of the great event of the Old Testament. Just to get a little review, in Exodus chapter 5, Moses details the desperate circumstances surrounding the nation of Israel. Moses has gone to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And, Moses, and uh, Moses gets a rude awakening from Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him, you're lazy. You, you don't need straw anymore. In fact, no more straw for your brick making. And the people's backs are whipped and their spirits are broken and the people are angry and uh, Pharaoh is angry and Moses is angry and everything is coming out bad and negative, and people are cursing God and cursing each other. In Exodus chapter 6, God begins to comfort his people. He hasn't yet begun to move. The circumstances haven't yet begun to change. But he's telling them theologically, telling them, speaking to their hearts, I'm about to move. I want you to trust me. I'm remembering my covenant. Remember what I've done for you in the past. And God begins to correct their theology. He begins to try to comfort them. But there's an irony in chapter 6, and it's that nobody is actually encouraged by the Lord's words. If you've ever tried to speak encouragement to somebody who's truly down, you marshal all your best encouragements and you lay it in front of them and you can tell simply by their body language or their facial expression that whatever you've said hasn't really encouraged them. It's going to take some time for the truths of that message to hit home. Well, God understands more than anybody else 
that for his people to be encouraged, they needed to see some action. Empty words weren't going to solve the day. And so when we come to Exodus chapter 7, God begins this great event, this great event called the Exodus. Remember, our book title, the book title comes from this word. It's not the original Hebrew title. The original Hebrew title, and these are the names. This is a title applied after the fact. The exodus, the deliverance, the departure. The story is layered. It has layers upon layers upon layers. We see all sorts of wonderful positives coming forth. We see a man, Moses, who's been called to be a leader, and he's growing and he's changing. We see the hardening of Pharaoh. We see the birth of a nation. We see worship beginning to play out. We see all of these themes and sub-themes weaving together. Moses is an author of sublime quality. And here in the book of Exodus, these qualities begin to really take hold. And here in chapter 7, we see the development of a new portion of the story. The first thing I'd like us to see this morning from the book of Exodus in chapter 7, the first thing that I'd like us to see this morning is that this event, bringing God's people out of the land, we haven't said this yet, but this event that we're about to study over the next several weeks is the central event of the Old Testament. That's our first point today. This, what we're about to encounter is the central event of the Old Testament. The, did you know, moving forward in Exodus chapter 12, verse 2, or in Exodus chapter 16, verse 1, that the Hebrew calendar is centered on this Exodus event? God wants them, as it were, to keep time based on the moment of this Exodus. The Passover is a worship service. But what does, the, what does the Passover memorialize? Does it memorialize the killing of the firstborn? Does it memorialize the killing of a lamb? No. The Passover, the great feast of the Old Testament, the central religious experience for these people, more important to them than Christmas is for you. This event is a celebration of the exodus, of God's delivering his people from the nation of Israel. As we move forward, we see that the central reason for right theology is that God has delivered you from Egypt. It's present time and again. I have just one reference up there, but I could put 20 different others. God says there's a reason you need to have theological orthodoxy. There's a reason you need to protect my truth. And it's because I brought you as a nation up out of the land of Egypt. God says, I want you to have godly character. He says, something as simple as having right weights and balances in Leviticus 19.35 or Numbers 15.40. Imagine this. Imagine there's a scandal in the valley. We've been pumping gas at $3.95 a gallon. I won't comment on the price of that gas, but imagine it's reported in the Standard Examiner that our local maverick has altered the meter of the gas pump 
And even though it says it's giving you 20 gallons, it's actually only giving you 19.9 gallons. And imagine if they collected just 5% or 0.5% extra off of everybody that comes through. Don't you think that would make a big difference at their bottom line eventually? Those gas pumps are calibrated. There's a seal that's put on them so that you have confidence that when it says you get 20 gallons, you get 20 gallons. Well, God in Leviticus says when you're weighing out gold or when you're weighing out items, you have a bag of weights, and that's how you determine weight. My people, my people will not have a set of weights that are a little too heavy or a set of weights that are a little too light. If your weight says one pound, it will be one pound. You will be ethical, righteous people. Why? Because I delivered you from Egypt. I brought you out. The deliverance, the exodus, becomes the reason for godly character. A man named Merrill has this quote. He says, the exodus is the most significant historical and theological event of the Old Testament because it marks God's mightiest act in behalf of his people. Imagine God doing something so obvious in the United States of America, the great superpower of our time. And God publicly delivers the nation from some evil in some dramatic way, despite the military might that we possess. And God does all of this publicly and obviously and supernaturally to where the only conclusion is God did this. This was an act of God. This is the event that God does. This is the moment that people hearken back to time and again. A man named D.A. Carson said it this way, the exodus controls a great deal of the discussion of the entire rest of the Old Testament. And he's right. He goes on to say that the rest of the Old Testament is a commentary on this event. All the rest of the Old Testament explains the significance of God taking his people out of the land. Now, we believers also know that as amazing as this event was, it's preparatory for the great deliverance that Christ gives us. We'll get to that in just a little bit. But suffice it to say, the Exodus, God's taking his people up and out of the land of Egypt, is the central event of the Old Testament. And we have the privilege of studying it over the next several weeks. As a brief point of application, would you pray that I would be up to the task of teaching it? It's a little bit daunting. It's a little bit overwhelming to see a story with so many layers, nuances, with such a great central point. How could one ever do it justice? Well, pray that, well, I know that I can't, but pray that the Lord might enable the preaching to get somewhat there. <laughs> All right, our second point is this. Every commentator brings out, when you read this, the patterns that take place in this Exodus event. Now, we're going to cover 
ten plagues. Okay? There are actually eleven signs and ten plagues. It's a little confusing, but the first sign we'll cover today, and that's the sign of Aaron throwing his staff down and it becoming a snake. We'll explain the significance of that in a minute. This is a private affair. It's something that takes place only with Pharaoh and within his court. It's a grace of God to confront him privately first and offer him an opportunity to let the people go scot-free. God does something very powerful in his midst. But Pharaoh hardens his heart, and so God begins to introduce plague. I want to cover a little bit of what we'll see moving forward so that it helps us. As I said, there are ten plagues. Now, way back when, once upon a time, I had a Bible professor make me memorize the plagues in order. And I will tell you that I know the Nile is the first one and the firstborn is the last one, and I can never remember anything in between. So we'll just cover them as we go. But I do know this. They're essentially, they break down into nine and one. The first nine plagues are, in a sense, lumped together. And the tenth plague is the great and mighty plague that is set apart. It stands off by itself. Of those first nine, imagine those plagues being divided into boxes of three. They're three by three. And the, there are themes and patterns that develop from those three sets of three. Okay? Let me give an example so you can see that. There's a pattern of announcement. In the first, fourth, and seventh plagues, so in each case the first of the three, Moses confronts Pharaoh at the Nile. In the second, what would this be, the fifth, and the eighth, so the second group of the three, Moses confronts Pharaoh in the palace. And then in each of these groups, remember there's three groups of three, the third one, there's no announcement at all. So Moses goes, Nile, palace, no announcement. Nile, palace, no announcement. Nile, palace, no announcement. Do you see the pattern? And that's intended to help Pharaoh understand that God is in absolute control. This wasn't luck. This wasn't something he was trying to pull off. I want us to notice, too, that there's escalating severity. The first several plagues are nuisances more than anything else. Of course, there's some loss of life when the Nile turns to blood. We're told the fish died. But that wasn't anybody's personal property. That was considered sort of a national treasure. The people were able to gather drinking water. But the plagues begin to progress. They go from annoyance to loss. They go from loss to pain. And from pain to death and ultimately human death. There's also escalating severity on the Egyptians and escalating grace for the Israelites. The Egyptians suffer more and more, and the Israelites suffer less and less. 
And again, these are emerging patterns that God is trying to accomplish. As I said, there's escalating severity and increasing protection. Now, I'm going to delve into an area that I know very little about. I promise you this will not be a technical discussion of the facts of math, okay? But I read a very scholarly article on it, and it seemed to make sense to me. I don't think I can repeat it. Did you know that the Egyptian culture was the first culture to have a numeral for zero? It was a breakthrough to have zero. It was a mathematical breakthrough to have a decimal point. Also a mathematical breakthrough to have essentially 10 digits before you roll it over. Zero through nine, and then you roll it over. That was a breakthrough. Nobody had thought of it before the Egyptians. It led to huge advances in the sciences and in mathematics. I don't totally understand why that is, but it did. It became so important in their culture that the number zero took on godlike significance. And that God chose to have ten plagues would scream to the Egyptians that underneath all of their scientific discovery was the creator of it all, the owner of this. And if there was any sense of a rationalism in that culture, God was attacking it at every level. And as we'll see as we work through the plagues, God is assaulting this pagan culture from every angle, from their pantheon of gods to their leader, to the day-to-day things that they began to worship, even down to their mathematics and sciences. God was showing himself superior in every way. Now, let's move our study forward a little bit and get specifically into Exodus 7. This, what we see right here, is a holy war. God is engaging in a holy war against the nation, Egypt. And the first thing that I want us to see is that God is the one who is taking the initiative. Look right here at verse, chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord says to Moses, it's the Lord who determines the test for Pharaoh. It's the Lord who determines the Nile turned into blood. It's the Lord who decides that frogs will invade the land and that grasshoppers will come and that the sun will be turned into black. It's God who's authoring these. It's God who's in charge. In fact, it's God who, pre- who demands in chapter 7, verse 2, a precise, multi- a precise rather obedience. He says, Moses, obey, do exactly as I say. God wants the precise words that Moses, is, that Moses uses to reinforce and undergird the theological message that he's giving. Moses is not his own independent actor here. He's, being, he's an ambassador being sent on a job. And it's not his job to render himself to the sensibilities of his audience. It's his job to deliver the message that his king has sent. And God wants it sent with precision. Furthermore, 
God is the one who says that he's causing these things to happen. Look at chapter 7, verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. The word multiply, you might want to circle that and put a little carrot in there. Cause to multiply. Make to multiply. There's an emphatic root in this word. It's saying, I... I myself am going to cause this to happen. God is taking great initiative in this holy war. In this holy war, God is giving signs. Look in chapter 7, verse 3. He says that these signs, he's going to multiply them. And these signs, of course, they're wonders. God is going to turn the Nile into blood. He's going to have Aaron's stick turn into a snake. But we have to stop for a moment. Because these aren't wonders just for the sake of doing a wonder. It's not a miracle just for the sake of performing it. During the height of COVID, when we were marooned in our houses, I have to make a confession. I was bored out of my mind. (laughs) My job is people, being around people, sitting with people, and suddenly I wasn't allowed to do that, and my job is speaking, and I had speaking engagements, and they all disappeared, and next thing I knew, I found myself with lots of time. I didn't know what to do with it, so among other things, I would have the kids go to bed at night, and I would turn on YouTube, and I would learn magic tricks, and in the morning, and I would practice them and practice them, And in the morning when they would wake up, I would do my magic tricks on them. And they would they would be more amazed at sometimes than others, you know. But I was doing a trick just to do a trick. There was no great significance in it other than just to do a fun dad thing. God is doing something quite the opposite. He has a point in mind. In fact, when we say, when God says sign, think of it like an actual sign arrow. By performing this sign, God is pointing to something. He's pointing to himself. He's pointing to something great. So what is it that he's pointing to? What is the thing he's pointing to? Well, We read about that. God wants to be acknowledged. He says, Egypt will know that I myself am Yahweh. And God is the one who's consistently using religious terminology. He says, he says to Moses, he says, see, I have made you as Elohim. And then he says, and your brother Aaron, then he uses the word Yahweh shall be your prophet. God is using theological terms because this is a theological war. This is a holy war for the hearts and minds of the Egyptian people and for the hearts and minds of the Israelite people. And God wants to demonstrate that at every level, he reigns supreme. At every level, he reigns supreme. And God is the one who's bringing religious and theological terminology in so that the people see that he is behind it. God is performing signs, not just to show that he's mighty, but to show something true about himself. 
Okay. That's enough prelude. Actually, the next point is the prelude. Let's get to the first sign. The first sign, which is a prelude sign. This is the first sign. Go with me to verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down a staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Let's stop there and unfold this a little bit. God predicts, he says, hey, Moses and Aaron, you're going to go talk to Pharaoh, and you're going to say, let my people go. And when you go there, he's going to say something to you. Now, imagine Moses. It hasn't happened too often yet. It's going to start happening very often. But Moses goes, and you can imagine the look on his face when Pharaoh says exactly to the letter what God says he will say. And the tone of Pharaoh's challenge is this. He says, do a sign. I'll, I'll, literal translation is, do a sign for yourselves. It, in other words, what he says is, who are you? Impress me. You come in, you, Moses, you and Aaron, you come in here. Who are you guys? Asking to let the people go, prove it. And of course, in this tone is the assumption that they can't. Pharaoh is thinking that they'll come in and leave with their tail between their legs. They can't produce any sign for themselves. You can imagine Moses and Aaron looking at each other when Pharaoh says, prove yourselves. And they're like, okay. <laughs> this is what God said would happen. Aaron takes his staff and he throws it onto the ground and it becomes a tannin, a serpent. Tr uh, translators are unsure how to translate this word. When Hebrew people talk about zoology, they're not trying to be precise like we would be. I was talking with somebody just two days ago, and they have, let's see if I can remember it right, they have golden retrievers. And I mistakenly called their dogs golden labs. I know, that's a big uh-oh. And I, I was on the receiving end of a very educational lecture on the differences between golden labs and golden retrievers. I think I'm going to call them labs next time, just so I can get a rise, okay? <laughs> well, they're, they're not doing that. They're not doing that. And this word tannin can mean a snake. It can mean a crocodile, a lizard, a scorpion. It can, in the book of Exodus, in the book of Jeremiah, it's referring to a more mythological creature, like a dragon. And so most interpreters think, okay, it, given the state of Egyptian religion, it's probably a snake, but by using the word tannin instead of nehushta, 
it's probably a particularly large and gnarly looking snake. Okay? If it's big enough to be a staff, that's the sort of snake that would send you running. I, have, I like to run on the trails in Utah. I, I, I haven't seen one yet this year, but I have frequently seen uh, rattlesnakes. I, I let them be. I don't attempt to kill them or touch them in any way. <laughs> I, I would be hard-pressed, though, to think I've seen one that's taller than my waist if you were to stretch it out. Imagine one going from the above my head down to the floor. It would be a pretty large snake. And so this is a particularly terrifying snake, apparently. And Aaron throws it to the ground. Pharaoh says, prove yourselves. And Aaron says, okay. He throws his staff onto the ground, and it becomes this giant, poisonous serpent. We're told that Pharaoh decides that he will attempt to one-up them. Now, it's important to note that this was God's idea. Aaron didn't think, I know what I'll do. I'll turn my staff into a snake. God wanted him to do this. Now, why is that? Because snakes in Egypt are incredibly significant. Pharaoh had a headdress that was gold, and it had a poisonous cobra on the front of his hat, or in the front of this golden amulet. And it was designed to ward off all evil powers that Pharaoh was the keeper of this snake power, as it were. There were all sorts of different kinds of snake gods in the Egyptian pantheon. Whenever there was war on earth, they assumed that the snakes in the region beyond and the netherworld were fighting and that fight had spilled over onto the earth. Snakes were symbols of power, symbols of healing, symbols of great terror. If a person was struck with a snake, it was assumed that that person had done something particularly odious to the gods and so they struck him with a poisonous snake. There was a whole special class of people who were trained in dealing with snake bites whose medicinal knowledge was dubious at best. But suffice it to say, snakes had this huge influence in the culture. I want you to imagine, I I was trying this week to rack my brain for a symbol of equal value in our culture. Imagine... Imagine a man walking down in front of the temple in Salt Lake City, the LDS temple in Salt Lake City. And on top of the temple sits the golden Moroni statue, and he's got his trumpet. And the man takes his wooden staff, and it, in front of a huge crowd of people, it turns into a trumpet. And he blasts on his trumpet, And when the sound wave hits Moroni, Moroni disintegrates into powder and swirls in the air and swooshes into the trumpet of the man speaking. And he smacks it on the ground. 
and says, thus says the Lord. That would be a powerful display of superiority, wouldn't it? Well, Pharaoh summons his magicians. And they somehow pull off a similar sign. Now, I will tell you that commentators have spilled oceans of ink trying to figure out exactly what they did. Some of the explanations are downright unbelievable. Okay, there's, there's one explanation, I'll tell you, because it made me laugh. Okay? That snake charmers back then could touch the snake in a special place, and the snake would go perfectly stiff like a rod and they would carry this perfectly stiff snake around. So it actually wasn't a rod, it was a snake. And then they would touch it in just the same spot, throw it on the ground, and it would become moving around again. I just, I couldn't, I was like, okay, that's an interesting explanation. That's one explanation. Others are that it was basically a magic trick. They used boxes and mirrors and sleight of hand to pull this off. Other explanations are that this was a, a miracle performed by the devil. In all honesty, I don't know what it was. And I think, I think Moses didn't either, to be honest with you. Look and see how Moses explains it. Moses says, he says, Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by how? By their secret arts. Their secrets. Moses wasn't privy to the secrets. What Moses would say is, it doesn't matter how they did it. If it was a magic trick or if it was uh, demonically empowered, what really matters is what happened next. And what happened next is that Aaron's staff swallowed theirs. Now, you need to draw a circle around that word swallowed and write the cross-reference Exodus 15.12. This word swallowed is only used two times in the book of Exodus. It's used here. And it's used for when Miriam was singing in the aftermath of the Exodus. She says that Pharaoh's legions went into the Red Sea, and the Red Sea swallowed them whole. It's an engulfing. And this is a symbol of judgment. And if you were Pharaoh or one of the wise men looking at this event, how could you have left with any other conclusion than the God of this man Moses and this man Aaron is so far superior to ours, we'd better just bow our hearts and worship right now. We'd better just let the people go. But what happened? Well, what happened is what happens often when God's word encounters people. God's word always has an effect. 
Christian, please never think that you're unmoved by God's word. God's word either softens you or it hardens you. But it doesn't leave you neutral. As one commentator put it, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Same sun, same word. And when we hear it, we're affected by it. And here Moses understood exactly what was going on. We see the beginnings of the transformation of this man. And Pharaoh sees the same sign, and his heart is hardened. Let's make two applications to what we've studied today. Number one, I want us to notice 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5 that God takes great care to destroy strongholds raised against his knowledge. Here were these Egyptian people worshiping their pantheon of gods. Among them are snakes, the Nile, frogs, grasshoppers, the sun. Sound familiar of what's to come? Pharaoh himself was putting himself in position, in the position of God, acting like God, thinking he's omnipotent and omniscient. And God begins to systematically take hold of those notions that raise their hand against God. He begins to tear at them. And God takes great pains always to destroy strongholds that are raised against the knowledge of God. It's not always evident immediately to God's people that that's what he's doing. But God is always at that. Now, dear friend, dear Christian friend, there's something you need to know. And I say this from hard experience know it or not, like it or not, we have strongholds in our hearts. Places of defense, little citadels we run and hide behind when God moves on us. Those citadels can be anything, really. And God comes at first very kindly knocking But when resistance is met, and if you're one of God's children, he will begin the systematic dismantling of that stronghold. He will take it apart for you brick by brick because he loves you. Because he doesn't want this thing in your life raised against him. And what we see in Pharaoh's life is the chief example of that in all of history. But God is doing that in each of our lives. I can recall when God first called me into pastoral ministry, there was a part of me that wanted to go 
a different direction. I wouldn't say necessarily that at the beginning of my journey that that was a bad thing. I was trying to juggle. What does God want me to do? Where does God want me to go? What career path does he want me to take? And God began to direct me into the pastoral realm. And to my shame, there were times I would look back into the other area I wanted to go into, and I would yearn for that. And what did God do but brought me to a position where all I wanted was the pastoral side of life. But it took him stripping away these other things first. Now, God was so gracious and kind to do that. It was painful in a good way. Because what I got in the end was fulfillment of what God was equipping me to do. I wish now only that I had seen that earlier and saved myself the heartache. Second thing. God despises enslavement and takes great pains to deliver us. Now by enslavement, Colossians 1, 13 and 14, we're talking about spiritual forces that hold us in our sin. In the book of Exodus, the enslavement of the nation of Israel is a symbol for the darkness that we're all in. The darkness that God says is present when we give in to sin and we allow the prince of the power of the air to rule our lives. God doesn't want to see his people enslaved, his creation, the people who are made in his image. He doesn't want to see them enslaved by these dark forces anymore. And so God took great initiative and at great personal cost to himself, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die deliver us from these powers that hold us, from this sin that trips us and darkens our understanding and our minds. It's God who took the initiative to deliver you. And so I would appeal to anybody today, perhaps you've heard over and again through these many years, the message that Christ will deliver you. And here it is again. You take hold of that deliverance by simply asking for it. Rescue me, Jesus, from my sins. You don't want me enslaved to them anymore. And you paid the price for me to be delivered. If that's the cry of your heart, tell it to the Lord and he will deliver you. He's the one who takes the initiative to move toward you. And then it can be said of you that you're saved because you've been delivered from the domain of darkness. Sinner, don't delay. Accept your rescue today. Father, would you give us grace? 
to cling to your promises, to cling to your truth. If any in here have never been delivered from darkness, save them today. And for those of us who have strongholds that rise up against you, you've perhaps been tearing at them in recent weeks and months. May we let down our arms and allow you to reign. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.